Hello everyone, uh, thank you for inviting us into your space today. We've got a lot of different ways for you to connect at Christ Community, so head on over to our website, check out the coming up page, and see all the different ways you can get connected right now. Also, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe whether you're on YouTube or listening on a podcast, um, just so you can see whenever new content's available. Enjoy the message. Uh, hey, if we don't know each other, I want to just introduce myself. I think most of you guys know me because I'm up here almost every week. But my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. I work in uh, the outreach world. Uh, and I just want to say welcome. I know it's a little snowy outside. I know it might have been a little bit difficult for some of you to get here, but welcome. You did it. Congratulations. Uh, I also want to give a special welcome to everyone who is watching online. And believe it or not, there's actually quite a few people. We have our friends down in Traditions. We have our friends in LaSalle. And then uh, thanks to the World Wide Web, we've got everybody on YouTube. So thank you for being a part of what God is doing here. Now, out of curiosity, as we begin, I got a quick question for you guys. How many of you are familiar with the Enneagram? Can we do a show of hands? All right, okay, okay, I saw a few enthusiastically go up. That's awesome. Well, a couple of years ago, it got really, really popular. It felt like everybody was talking about it, even in the church. There were actually a lot of churches that designed sermon series around it. Now, if you don't know what the Enneagram is and you were to Google it, Google would probably tell you it's a personality test, which is true, definitely a personality test. But in my experience, it's so much more than that. Uh, for a lot of years, I was kind of like an Enneagram apologist trying to tell everybody I could about it because I found it to be so helpful in my own life. And the way that I would describe it to people is this. It's a roadmap to the soul, right? It helps you understand why you are the way you are, why you do the things that you do. But more importantly, it helps you understand how to find peace and wholeness in that. Now, I first encountered the Enneagram probably about six or seven years ago when I read a book on a whim after I heard somebody talking about it on a podcast. It was a book called The Sacred Enneagram. And I remember reading this book and feeling really disturbed because it felt like the author had this inside window into my soul, into the things that I was feeling. It just felt like somehow he knew what was happening inside of me. He knew about the joy, the pain, the struggle and the frustration for trying to understand why I do the things that I do. Now, from the first page of that book, I was hooked. And, and you know, if you know me, you know that once I get hooked on something, I kind of become obsessed with it. So I went on a deep dive into the Enneagram. I read, I don't know, maybe like five or 10 other books on it. I listened to every podcast I possibly could. I took four or five different tests. And at the end of it, I found myself identifying as a three, which is what the Enneagram calls the achiever. Now, from the outside, the achiever is often celebrated in our culture because of what they can accomplish, right? These are typically the people who are strong leaders, the people who are really driven. They do a lot. They love to be up front. They do things that most people would look at and objectively say, that's a really great thing. But, and there's always a but with things like this, here's what you don't see when you look at a three. You don't see the motivation behind the things that they do. And I say this as, as a three, so I feel like I'm qualified to say this, but a lot of times, as good as things can look on the outside, things aren't always what they seem on the inside. You see, when threes aren't healthy, there's actually this disconnect that exists between what we do and why we do it. So, so it looks one way on the outside, right? The way that we want it to look. You could even say the way that we need it to look. We look like we're altruistic. We look like we're compassionate. We're doing things for the good of other people. But truthfully, the thing that's driving it internally, right, the thing that's motivating that inside of us, well, it's a little bit different. 
Often, instead of doing things for the good of other people, a three will, when they're not healthy, they'll do these things because they actually have an ulterior motive. You see, a lot of threes, when they're not healthy, they're doing all the things they do because they actually have a deep insecurity inside of them. They have a lack of any kind of sense of self-worth. And for some reason, they think that if they could just do more, if they could just do something that's better, it's finally gonna validate them. It's gonna give them a sense of meaning and purpose. All right, now that unhealthy place, that's exactly where I was in my life when I discovered the Enneagram. Right from the outside, things look great. I was in a doctoral program. I was leading a growing student ministry. I had an amazing family, but inside, I felt broken. I felt really unhealthy. And look, I I didn't wanna be broken. I didn't wanna feel unhealthy, but I didn't know what to do about it. Now, regardless of your Enneagram type, I think this particular issue that I was dealing with at that time, where there was a disconnect between what I was doing and why I was doing it, I think that's something that all of us struggle with to one degree or another. You see, we all have these things that we do because we think we need to do them in order to fit in. We all have these things that we do because of how it makes us look to other people. Maybe we do it because we crave validation. Maybe we're looking for somebody else's approval, or maybe... We just do it because we think that's what we're supposed to do. Regardless of why we do it, we all deal with this. Now, I was thinking about this struggle that I have and that many of us have when I was writing this message and what struck me as being really weird was how normal I thought this disconnect was at one point in my life. I started thinking about all the different relationships I have with people who are walking through this right now and I started thinking about how normal they think that is in their life. And it got me wondering what do we do with that, right? Like, like, have we ever just stopped and asked ourselves, is this healthy, right? Is this actually good? Is this a thing that God actually wants for us? Does he want us to live with this disconnect between our heart, our motives, and the actions and things we do? Or is there a better way of living that he's actually inviting us into, a way of living that is whole and authentic, You know, if you've been around for a while, you know that a number of months ago, we started a series where we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, right? In 1 Corinthians, it's this letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church he planted in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth, it wasn't really all that different from the world we find ourselves in today, right? They wrestled with many of the same issues that we wrestle with, things like sexuality, ethics, morality, philosophy, wealth, power. Their world was really similar to our world. And so as we've been going through this letter, we've been asking ourselves a couple different questions. One of them is this, God, in light of what you said to the church in Corinth, what are you saying to us here in Greeley? And then another question we've been asking is this, is okay, God, if that's what you're saying to us, how are you calling us to live in light of what you're saying? Today, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 13, one to three. And in this passage, we're gonna find Paul addressing that tension that a lot of us feel when it comes to this gap that exists between what we do and why we do it, the gap between our heart and our actions. Now, before we get into the passage, it's helpful to remember what we've looked at over the last month or so. 
And that'd be uh, 1 Corinthians 12, right? This is a chapter where Paul talked about the different spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. He talked about things like prophecy and wisdom, healing, speaking in tongues. Now, in the Corinthian church, what we find in what Paul wrote is that there was a problem. You see, the believers had this tendency to place these gifts into a hierarchical order, right? So the people who had the more desirable gifts, right? The platform gifts that could draw and impress a crowd, well, they'd get more honor. And then the people who had the less desirable gifts, these are like the behind the scenes gifts. They're just as important, but we don't really celebrate them as much. Well, they got less honor, right? And it was creating conflict in the church where people wanted all of these gifts. They began to ignore those gifts and things just weren't operating the way they were supposed to. And so Paul, as he writes them, he uses this metaphor of a body to try to help this church understand the reality that for a body to be healthy, for a body to be whole, every part needed to be exercising its own gifts so it can contribute to the overall health of the whole, meaning that no gift was more important than any other gift, and no gift was more needed than any of the other gifts. They all mattered. Well, at the end of this chapter, Paul says something that, that's really kind of minute, but it's actually really significant, and it's going to set up where we're going to be going for the next several weeks. There in verse 31, the last part of it, Paul says this after talking about all the spiritual gifts, all the things that God has given to the church. Paul says this, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. It's as if Paul here is telling us that while the gifts are great, while they do have value, because they really do, there's something out there that's actually better than the gifts. It's what Paul calls the most excellent way. This is what Paul is gonna be talking about in chapter 13. He's gonna be talking about what the most excellent way is. So let's read the passage we have for today. And then we're gonna dive deeper into it and talk about how it actually applies to us and what we do with it. All right, in verse one, this is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. All right, so in the last chapter, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And, and he's actually gonna return to that kind of conversation in chapter 14. But there in the middle of talking about these gifts, Paul pauses to introduce us to a new topic. It's a teaching where we're gonna discover what this most excellent way is. And what we see here. And then the rest of chapter 13 is that the most excellent way, what's well, the way of love? Now that can sound a little cheesy, right? Maybe even a little bit cliche, but it's important to know that he's not talking about the same kind of love that we might be thinking about when we hear that word. Right? Because in our culture, love, well, it can mean anything. It really can. It's so overused that it feels like that word itself carries no weight. But that's not the case when Paul uses it. Right? The word that Paul uses here, it does carry weight. It has meaning because the love that Paul is talking about here, it's a love known as agape love. Now, agape is one of the four Greek words used in this time period to describe love. Eros was one of them. That was a romantic love, right? So the way you feel about a significant other, that's eros. And then you've got philea. That's a brotherly love, right? We actually have a city, Philadelphia, named after this, the city of brotherly love. You've got Sturge, this is actually a motherly love, the way a mom would feel for her kids, but agape, agape was different. Agape was deeper, it was more full, 
right? Agape, if you were to sum it up, it is selfless, it is sacrificial, and it is unconditional, right? If you were to read through the New Testament, you'd see that agape is the kind of love that God has for us. And then if you were to keep reading in the New Testament, you'd see that agape is the kind of love that we as a people have been called to extend to other people. Agape love, this selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional love, this is the most excellent way that Paul is talking about. This is the way that is better than any spiritual gift. So knowing that, we have to ask ourselves, Why did Paul pivot to this emphasis on love in the middle of a conversation about spiritual gifts? Well, it's probably because we as a people have this tendency to focus on the wrong things. For the believers in Corinth, they were stuck on the spiritual gifts. That's what they were focused on. And while they were focused on that, they were missing the thing that mattered most. They were missing love. And Paul is reminding them, look, as valuable as the gifts are, as needed as they are, they're not the main thing. Paul would say that without love, the gifts, they're pointless. Now, as we consider what Paul says here in these verses, it might be helpful to understand a little bit of Paul's own story and journey. You see, Paul, he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he understood the complexity of the relationship that often exists between what we do and why we do it, between following the letter of the law and honoring the spirit of the law. Now, the Pharisees, these were people who prided themselves on adhering strictly to the letter of the law. That's what mattered to them. Right? They cared only about the letter of the law. But as Paul himself observes in a letter that he wrote later on to the Philippians, even though the Pharisees often got the behavior right, they often miss the spirit of the law. In other words, they miss the whole heart and point behind the law. Just as an example of this, consider the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was meant to be this thing that offered rest to a people who at the time it was given to them had only known oppression, right? It was given to the people when they fled from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. The Sabbath, it was meant to be a gift of rest, but in time, because of the Pharisees, the Sabbath actually became a burden, The Pharisees had 39 different categories of things they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, right? Honoring it, it became a lot of work. And that's kind of ironic because the whole point of it was actually to rest. You see, the Pharisees, they were masters of missing the point. Now, this struggle between what we do and why we do it This is what Paul had to wrestle with in his life. And honestly, I think that this is what many of us have to wrestle with in our lives today. We do. And and the Corinthians, well, they were dealing with the same thing. They were fixated on this uh, superficial aspect of their faith, right? The gifts, while at the same time, they were missing the whole heart and point behind them. Nothing was ever about the gifts themselves. That wasn't what God wanted them to focus on. It was the heart. It was the love that was supposed to be behind them. And so when Paul sees his friends going down the wrong path, we can understand why he drew such a clear line in the sand here. Because let's be honest, what Paul says in these verses, it's really direct. Right? It's, it's, it's really black and white, right? Were you to go read all the commentaries about this passage, you're gonna find that there's not actually a lot of debate about what Paul meant here. Right? Nobody's arguing about it. 
Everybody understands what Paul is saying. He's saying that it's not the gifts or the things that we do that define us. It's not the gifts or the things that we do that have value. The only thing that really matters is the love that is motivating them. That most excellent way. All right, so let's dig a little deeper into this passage. In these verses, Paul is going to identify three areas where most of us probably struggle to live out this most excellent way out, right? This way of love, areas where we're prone to act without it. The first is this, it's in what we say, right? Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now in Corinth, uh, which again, it was kind of this really major metropolitan area. It was a melting pot of a lot of different cultures. In Corinth, the art of speech, it was held in high regard. Being a good communicator, it, it wasn't just a thing that people admired. It was actually a thing that became a spectacle in the community. People would pay lots of money to go hear people give good speeches. See, we go to a movie theater, we go to a sporting event. They would go down and listen to somebody talk for an hour right? This was something people loved. Now in this verse, Paul references this particular kind of speaking, right? The good communication, as well as this thing that he calls the tongues of angels. Now, based off of what he talked about in chapter 12, we could assume that this is actually uh, Paul referencing the gift of tongues. Now, both of these styles of communication, whether you're speaking in tongues or being a really good communicator, both of these were things that were highly sought after in the church, and, and look, it, it's no different today. Right? This is why we have TED Talks. This is why we love motivational speeches. They're powerful. They can move us. Some of the best-selling books and the most listened to podcasts are all about communicating better. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think we should strive to communicate better. Can you imagine how much better our country would run if we had good communication? Can you imagine how much better your marriage would be or your relationship with your kids would be if you could just communicate better? Better communication is a really good thing. We should strive for it. But we shouldn't fall prey to the lie that tells us better communication means we will have a higher worth and value. What Paul says here should be a warning that we pay attention to. Regardless of how eloquent our words might be, regardless of how many people listen to us or praise us, if what we say isn't rooted in love, if it's not motivated by love, it's meaningless. Because in the divine economy, the worth and weight of our words isn't measured by applause. It's measured by the love that inspires those words. Now at this point, we've gotta ask ourselves a question. And we've got three series of questions like this, but just consider this. What's driving the things we say? Is it the hope that we'll be perceived a certain way? Is it the praise we'll get or that feeling of superiority when we best somebody in a conversation? And by the way, this works both with our words and the things we post on Facebook. Is that what's motivating us? Or is it a genuine love for the people or the person that we're speaking to. Sharing the things we say in a way that's inspired and rooted in love means we don't just try to sound eloquent. We don't just try to sound clever. Instead, we actually take the time to understand the concerns and the needs of the people that we're speaking to. We intentionally speak in a way that meets people where they're at. We focus on communicating in a way that's gonna uplift, in a way that's gonna empower and in a way that's gonna support the people that we're talking to. 
When we speak in a way that's rooted in love, we're not speaking because of anything it does for us. We're only thinking about what our words will do for other people. Well, the second area where we're prone to act without love, uh, it's with what we know, or it's with how we exercise certain spiritual gifts related to knowledge. In verse two, Paul says this, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, let's be honest. There's a certain appeal to the prophetic gifts, right? There's a certain appeal to people who understand deeper things, to people who have a faith that is so powerful it can literally move mountains. It's compelling. When we see people with these kinds of gifts, it's really inspiring. It's the kind of thing that makes us want to follow them, right? There's a reason that so many people go to the conferences and churches where signs and wonders like these are on display by the people who lead them. These gifts are things that we yearn to experience. You could even say that these are things we need to experience. But the problem is, a lot of times, we tend to equate somebody's holiness with what they do in terms of exercising these gifts. And we even do that for ourselves, right? So the more gifts you have, the greater levels you exercise in that, the more holy and spiritual you must be. But what does Paul say here? Well, he says that without love, these gifts... As remarkable as they might appear, at the end of the day, they're meaningless. They're nothing. They don't make us any better. And that's because love is the thing that gives them meaning. You see, love is what changes knowledge into wisdom. Love is what changes a belief or a conviction into a faith that can move mountains. Without love, even the most miraculous gifts mean nothing because they lack the very thing that gives them value. They lack love. So, what's driving the things we share when it comes to what we know or some of these gifts we have? Is it a hope that we're gonna be seen a certain way? Is it a hope that we might even see ourselves in a certain way? Or is it a love for the people around us? Is it a desire to see them be blessed because of what we do and what we share? Sharing what we know in a way that's driven by love means that we're not just focused on sharing profound insights with people. Instead, we're focused on doing it with a heartfelt compassion. It means we're using our wisdom to genuinely care for the spiritual well-being of the people around us, patiently walking with them and showing empathy towards them. Instead of using these things to you know, build up our own sense of ego, we actually use them to foster a community of love, support, and growth. It's not about us, it's about what we can do for them. Now the third and last area that Paul addresses in these verses, where we're prone to fail in this, it's, well, it's with what we give. Verse three, he writes this, if I give all I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Sacrifice, charity, giving, right? These are the things that we celebrate as the pinnacle of human virtue in our world today. Actions that, you know, objectively, they embody the heart of altruism. We celebrate seeing the world's wealthiest people sign the giving pledge where they say they're gonna give 90% of their money away to people in need. We celebrate when we see somebody pull over at the stoplight and give money to that guy sitting there so they can go have a meal. 
We celebrate the movies where the hero at the end gives up his own life so that he could save somebody else's. This is the kind of stuff we celebrate in our culture. And look, at face value, this is what we're prone to do. We tie these acts to somebody's character, to their maturity. We say, if you are willing to give this, then you must be spiritual. You must be close to God. You must be holy. But what does Paul say? He says that if these sacrifices are made without love, right? If they're not performed with a sincere heart, if there is some other selfish motive behind them, then those sacrifices, they're gonna lose all of their value. It's like Paul is saying that love isn't an accessory we add to the things we give or the things we do. It's actually the foundation of the very currency in the divine economy. It is the only thing that really matters. Without love, even the most sacrificial acts even the most sacrificial gifts, they are spiritually bankrupt. So what is driving the sacrifices we're making? Do we you know, make those sacrifices or give those gifts just so that we could per- be perceived as somebody who is generous? Do, do we just do it for a tax write-off? Right? What's the motivation? Is it for something we get or... Are we motivated by a genuine love that truly wants to see other people be cared for? Letting love drive the things that we give, whether it's money or something else, it means that we do what we do selflessly for the benefit of other people without seeking any personal glory or recognition. It's about doing these things and genuinely caring for the well-being of people who are in need. It means we take it personally, right? Instead of just donating money to a worthy cause, it means that we actually take the time to actively engage people so that we can begin to understand the challenges they're dealing with, so that we can get to know them and discover new ways to be able to help. And instead of boasting about what we do, we humbly and quietly make a difference in the lives of other people not caring about any of the glory and recognition, and we do that just because of the love we have for them. You know, if I were to sum up what Paul says here in these three verses using my own words, right? If I were to try to synthesize these three things down to one statement, it would probably go something like this. What we do is not nearly as important as why we do it. Right, what we do, whether it's words whether it's deeds, whether it's sacrifices, whether it's gifts, it is not nearly important as why we do it. Friends, I really believe that this is something we have to understand, that this is something we have to internalize because I suspect that most of us grew up with a version of Christianity, whether we experienced it ourselves or whether we just saw other people living it out, but this version of Christianity, it told us that as long as we believe the right things in our heads and do the right things with our hands, maybe even these three things that Paul listed here, right? But if we just do them, if we just have the right outcome, then we're good. But from what we just read here, from what Paul says, that's not the case. It's not just about what happens. There's something else that we've gotta be focused on. And look, this is something that Jesus said as well. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to a group of people. He's teaching them about the kind of life he's calling them to. And towards the end of the sermon, he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles in your name? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. All right, so according to what Jesus says, there's gonna be this whole group of people who thought they got it right. These will be the people who followed the letter of the law. They said the right things. They performed miracles. They made sacrifices. Objectively speaking, they did everything they thought they were supposed to do. They were good Christians who got all of the behaviors right. But what does Jesus say to them after they list their credentials, right? After they give him their spiritual resumes for everything they had done for him, what does he say? He says, away from me. I never knew you. I've got to imagine that this teaching of Jesus was in the back of Paul's mind when he was writing this letter to his friends in Corinth because Paul knew what was really at stake. You see, his friends, they had gotten so sidetracked by the spiritual gifts that they missed the whole point of why they had been given the gifts in the first place. It wasn't to elevate their status. It wasn't to make them feel like they were more holy. They were given the gifts so that they could extend the love of Jesus to the people who were around them. And they had missed it. And Paul is writing here to remind them. He's writing here to plead with them to not miss out on love. Right in that same plea that Paul made to them, he's making to us. Don't miss out on love. Right, so what do we do with this? Right, how can we live in a way where we're not getting distracted by the things that don't really matter? How can we be a people who are growing in love? Because we all know like, love isn't this thing we can manufacture, right? We, we can't force ourselves to be more loving with sheer willpower. But even though we can't force it, the Bible does tell us that we can grow in it. And so how do we do that? Right, how do we grow in love so that love can become this thing that fuels everything we do? Well, to find our answer, let's look at something that Paul said in a letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. There in chapter three, verses 14 to 19, Paul says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The way we grow in love, it's not by trying harder. It's not by having more motivation. It's just this thing that God does in us when we continually dwell on how wide and long and high and deep the love Jesus has for us is. 
You see, when we focus on that love, our hearts, they're strengthened. We're filled with power through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And this is really similar to what Paul says to the church in Galatia, where in chapter five, he says that love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And he says that when we walk in the Spirit, when we're intentional about uh, cultivating an intimate relationship with him, love is what that relationship is gonna produce in our lives, right? Love will be the fruit. And this echoes what Jesus says in John 15, where he says this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So let's put this all together. When we remain in Jesus, when we dwell on the love that he has for us, when we walk in the spirit and have an intimate relationship with him, we're gonna begin to step into the love that God has for us. And when we step into that love, we're gonna begin to experience that love. And as we experience that love, it's gonna begin to consume us. And as we're consumed, we'll become filled with this love. And as we're filled with this love, it'll have nowhere else to go So it begins to flow out of us. And as this love flows out of us, it begins to saturate everything we do. It's not gonna be quantified or measured by the things we say, do, or give. It's actually gonna become the very essence of them. Church, if we wanna grow in love, we don't need to look to the things that we do. We just need to look to Jesus. You know, that deep dive I did into the Enneagram all those years ago, was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Because in so many ways, it made me see myself for who I really was, right? It was kind of like this mirror that got held up to my life. And as I looked into that mirror, I saw just how unhealthy I was. I saw my insecurity. I saw my brokenness, I saw my arrogance, my lack of empathy, and my lack of compassion. And as I looked in that mirror, I felt like a fraud. And that was a really hard thing to face. But honestly, I'm so grateful for that whole process I had to walk through. Because what I found from Jesus in the midst of the pain and the confusion was an invitation It was an invitation to break free from the vicious cycle that told me that my value and worth was directly tied to what I could produce, that my value and worth was directly tied to what other people thought of me. It was an invitation to understand my true self, to find healing for the deep wounds that I'd carried with me since childhood, and to discover who I was in Jesus, and to find my identity, value, and worth in him alone. That was a painful thing to walk through. There was a lot of death to self. But at the end of it, I found a peace and freedom I'd never known. I found a sense of 
purpose and calling I'd never known. There was a newfound motivation that drove everything I was doing. Now, now here's the funny thing. If you were to look at my life and you were kind of gonna do a side-by-side comparison of then and now, uh, looking at it like externally from your perspective, not a lot has changed. I'm still in ministry. I still have a public platform. I still have a family. We're very busy. None of my externals have changed at all. But internally, man, I'm a whole new person. Inside, everything has changed. Instead of feeling broken, I feel whole. Instead of feeling empty, I feel full. The things that I say, the things that I do, the gifts I give, the sacrifices I make, I'm not constantly evaluating them through the lens of how other people are gonna perceive them. Now look, there are times I still struggle, but it's a lot less than it used to be. I feel like I've made progress as I've come to understand this most excellent way that Paul is talking about. Learning that I'm loved by Jesus and stepping into that love, it has allowed me to extend the same love to others. And friends, let me tell you, that used to be a struggle for me, but now it just feels natural. Like this is who God made me to be. The outside, it's all the same, but the things inside motivating me, the things driving me, it's different. I don't need to impress anyone. I don't need to justify anything to myself. I don't need to do anything to fit in. I just live in the love that God has for me and everything I do, it just flows out of that. It may not change the way other people experience me on the outside, but on the inside, it has changed everything about my relationship with Jesus and the joy that I experience within that. At the end of the day, I think this is what Paul wanted for the believers in Corinth. And I think this is what Jesus wants for us, to be a people who can live authentically in the love he has for us so that others could experience the natural outpouring of that love in everything we do, whether it is the things we say, the things we share, or the things we give. And so friends, let us commit to being a people who grow in this love. Let us stay connected to Jesus. Let's dwell on the richness of the love that he has for us. Let us experience the fullness of this love. Let us be filled with it so that it can permeate everything we do as it flows out of us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, before we do anything else. We wanna create space for you to speak, to say the things that we need to hear, to lead us to the places we need to be led. And so church, I wanna invite you to stand where you are, if you're able. This is a practice we do every week, and we think it's important just to give the spirit a chance to speak. And if you're comfortable, I would invite you to put your hands out like this. Right, this is a sign of submission. This is a sign of, of openness. And as you open your heart to what the spirit might do, I just invite you to say with me these ancient words. Come, Holy Spirit. We wait. We open our hearts to you, so come, Holy Spirit, we wait.
and take a few moments to allow the Spirit to speak. Father, we are humbled by the love that you have for us. This love that surpasses all understanding, this love that invites us into a deeper relationship with you. This time together tonight, would our hearts be transformed by this love? Would these things that we've heard not just be words that go into our ears, but would these be seeds that are planted deep within our souls? Seeds that take root and seeds that bear fruit. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Would you show us more of this love so that it could flow through us? Thank you. So wherever you are coming out of this message, we just want you to know that you don't have to journey alone. We have a button on our website that we encourage you to click and there's somebody on the other side that would love to chat with you or pray with you. So that is all we have today. Have a great rest of your week.